0: Good morning, and thanks, Emily, for reading that long passage. I do encourage you, if you uh, do go home, um, really read that passage again, Isaiah 58. I think it's, it's rather poignant and, and very relevant for, for our present day, and it's really amazing to think how, it was, or amazing or depressing, to think that it was thousands of years ago and it's still so applicable for today. On January 29th, the city of Ottawa declared a housing emergency at a city level. They currently have 12,000 people waiting on their affordable housing list and at least 92 people sleeping outside as shelters are gap capacity and overflowing. The situation in Ottawa that Ottawa is dealing with is not any different than what we have here in Kitchener with wait times as seven plus years for affordable housing units for single adults and shelters consistently over capacity with people uh, sleeping on church floors in an overflow shelter. Shelters are currently 20-30 people over capacity. Many frontline workers and advocates are calling on our own local government to declare a similar emergency. I myself would not be opposed to this action because something has to change. Though strangely, As I read this declaration on CBC's website last week uh, from Ottawa, I could not help but fear the surge of anger, not hope rising in me, which I felt should be there. Reflecting on my reaction and why I felt this way, I kept thinking about the first line of the CBC article. It stated, Canada's capital has uh, has become the first city in our country to declare a housing and homelessness emergency but it's not clear at all what, if anything, will change. As I prepared this sermon and reflected on uh, Isaiah 58, I could not shake the idea that this declaration of emergency is just a progressive liberal rebranding of the dreaded thoughts and prayers response that is given by Republicans south of the border after natural uh, disasters and school shootings. It seems that as politicians say these words, yet no meaningful policy or social change occurs to help the most vulnerable in our society. The passage read today seems to responding to a similar situation taking place in the Israelite community. The chapter starts out describing a people that seems to have a desire to know God and do what is right. The community knows all the rituals, the practice, the prayers. The writer even states that they ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. It seems like there's an intention to be good, just, and faithful nation, yet the author of the passes severely rebukes them, especially at the beginning. Their piety and ritualized adherence to the law is worthless when not paired with active social ethic that reaches beyond simple, individualized, self-indulgent acts of worship. This passage is uncomfortable for me to read, because I am the insider, to which the author is speaking to. I am a person who attended church my whole life, studied peace and conflict studies, works in the social service. One can easily say I check off all the boxes for being a good, obedient Mennonite. I can basically purchase my ticket to heaven already. Yet, if I am honest with myself, as a middle-class Canadian, I continue to be a person who benefits from the world's unjust system that exploits both people and the environment. And I think many of us can say the same thing. I am a hypocrite even if it's hard or even impossible in some cases to completely opt out of these systems of exploitation, what am I going to do about this reality, this tension that I find within myself and that is found at the beginning of this passage where there's a lot of piety yet not a lot of action? The first and obvious response is a dedication to reforming the economic system I find myself in. Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament professor uh, at, uh, most recently, Columbia University, even cautioned against overinterpreting this passage, as the message is simple and clear and still applies to this day, as much as when it was written. We simply need to do better uh, for our marginalized neighbors reject the passion of privatization and seek an economy that is focused on mutual benefit to all members of the community through progressive and effective uh, public policy. During this time, Israel uh, the Israelites when I just came back, uh, this is the third part of Isaiah. there's kind of scholars have it in three different um, kind of sections of the book is written by kind of essentially three different periods of time. So the Israelites are just starting to, figure out how to do society again after return from exile. So you can definitely read this as how to create effective public policy for everyone. But this interpretation is not controversial and I believe would be supported, uh in, in our church community. So why should I speak about it? Then I'm just talking to the echo chamber. So yes, economic justice is one of the central themes of the passage. I, along with Brueggemann, though, would argue that simply viewing this passage as a public policy document for a regrouping Israelite nation is doing the readers a disservice because it is is only one of the elements of what the prophet is asking from the community. The passage has urgency to it. The passage has elements of a personal call to true fasting, which means doing without, denying self, and giving things up in obedience. It is a call to immediately start to share bread, to share houses, to share clothing, to forgive debt as a neighborly duty. Well, Rockway, all of a sudden would we rather go back to debating public policy options to poverty? Maybe we should just declare a homelessness and housing emergency like Ottawa did and then we can just do away with it. This is a little easier to do, don't you think, rather than start reflecting on your personal autonomy and ability to be a change maker and a servant of God. What's stated above is incredibly personal language that forces us to look beyond just justice, but towards solidarity with the poor and the oppressed and populations that are different from ourselves. When When the Israelite community returned to what, what was the promised land, there were people still there. So during this time, the Jewish community was struggling what to do with outsiders, or, and even the redefinition of what it meant to be Jewish was happening at this time. So there was a lot of tension about who to include, and I think you can read this kind of economic um, injustices happening where there seemed to be an elite group, and then there seemed to be people who are more marginalized. So the fast this passage is asking us to embark on requires us to not turn away from our own flesh and blood and embrace the whole community, similar to what the Jew, uh, the Jewish community was doing at the time. It calls us not to just symbolic actions or even just structural actions. It calls us to direct action as a means of both healing the community but also healing ourselves, as it states in verse 8. Then your light will break forth like a dawn, and your healing will appear quickly, or quickly appear. So Rockway, what does this look like in real life? What does real solidarity look like when addressing economic injustices around us? Or what Bryce was talking about earlier today, racial injustice. We didn't coordinate at all. <laughs> what are your own personal sacrifices that are necessary in creating positive social change? Is that economic? Is that making yourself feel uncomfortable and ent- entering situations? Or is that giving up some time to be in solidarity with people around us? But to help you, I want to tell a story uh, of a book I just read, and I borrowed an interview that that the author gave... Um, from on the internet, because he says it more precisely than me. So, I recently started a book called Palaces for the People, where the author Eric uh, Klinberg coined the concept of social infrastructure. Social infrastructure is the glue, according to him, is the glue that binds communities together. And it is just as real as the infrastructure for water, power, or communications, although it is often harder to see. We as a society need to invest in our social infrastructures such as library, parks, schools, and we'll reap the benefits of all kinds, uh, we'll reap all kinds of benefits. And I would add too, is if we think about investing time in church and how we uh, form that to be a blessing to the community. In social infrastructure, we become more likely to interact with people around us and connect to the broader public. If we neglect social infrastructure, we tend to grow more isolated, both as an individual and communities, which can have serious consequences. I think we just have to look down to the states to see that. The first time Klinberg thought about social infrastructure was when he was a graduate student doing a research project about a terrible heat wave that took place in Chicago in 1995. I'm not familiar with that, I was only four years old, but uh, many of you may remember that time. It was a disaster that killed more than 700 people. And as a social scientist, Klinberg was interested in understanding the patterns that emerged from it. The first pattern he observed was most predictable, and as we talked about earlier in the passage, which was that more poor and segregated neighborhoods on the south sides and west sides of Chicago had the highest death rates by far. But when Klinberg looked more closely at the patterns, something really puzzling emerged. There was a number of working class neighborhoods that demographically appeared as though they should have fared very badly in the disaster, but actually proved to be strikingly resilient and even safer than some affluent neighborhoods in the north side of Chicago. Why was that? Even more interesting, there were a pair of neighborhoods uh, where the demographics were identical. Each neighborhood had the same portion of old, poor, and African-American people, and were separated by just a street. They were, li- they were literally neighboring neighborhoods. But one had an astonishing high death rate during this crisis, and the others was one of the safest places in Chicago. Klimberg observed that the places that had low death rates turned out to have a robust social infrastructure. They had sidewalks and streets that were taken care of. They had neighborhood libraries and community organizations, grocery stores, shops, and cafes that drew people out of their homes into the public life. What that meant was that on a daily basis, people got to know each other pretty well and used the social infrastructure to socialize. When the heat wave happened in Chicago, neighborhood residents knew who was likely to be sick, who should have been outside but wasn't, this meant that they knew whose door to knock on if someone needed help. Meanwhile, in neighborhoods that had really high death rates, the social infrastructure was depleted. There was a lot of abandoned properties, empty lots, abandoned houses. Sidewalks were often cracked, broken, and there was little commercial life. Is not what Klinberg uh, observed is essentially what the prophet is speaking about as true fasting and worship. It's making sure your neighbor has all that they need. Surprisingly to me, he did not mention about churches in the book. At least I actually only partway finished it. Maybe he does in the second half, but I don't think so. Uh, But I suspect uh, congregants would have done well during the heat wave. If I would venture a guess, this would be because of the the strong... uh, social infusion as embedded in a Sunday morning. If someone's not here on a Sunday morning, we take note. If someone is not doing well, we can take note. So Rockway Church and Mennonites in general are really good at doing social infrastructure in our own communities. It is part of religious and ethnic makeup. Though, I want to challenge us to continue to build social structures outside our comfort zone and not just in our own communities. I grew up uh, at Floridale Mennonite Church, a very rural congregation. I don't know who started this, but in the 90s, they paired with a downtown church at Jane and Finch. And if you knew the 90s, Jane and Finch was one of the most dangerous areas of Toronto. I don't know who was crazy enough to think, let's get a group of like farming Mennonites and a group of kind of Mennonites, but people just living in a Jane and Finch building and let's put them together and everything's going to be all right. But what was born out of that was decade-long friendships and a decade-long exchange where we would go up in a yellow bus, go down to Jane and Finch and visit them. And then during the summers, they would come and spend weekends at us. That is social infrastructure. That is what I believe the prophet is talking about when you think about looking out for the marginalized. Not just for the marginalized sake, for your own sake. That's how we build a strong community. So for us, what is that here, here at Rockway? Is that your own ethic of attending sterling suppers? Bryce, you spoke about interfaith dialogue. Maybe it's connecting with our neighbours here on Onward Avenue or connecting with your neighbours at home. These social connections and neighbourly care can literally save one's life or the net life of your neighbour and spur you to be in solidarity with a new group of people you didn't know before. It is easy to talk about public policy it is hard to sit with someone to change public policy. So yes, we need to seek justice and change public policy. That concept is embedded in the text. But we cannot forget about direct action and the need to be in solidarity with people living next to us. This is true to, truly a radical life and, a cha- and, and life-changing actions. So I want to leave you today with the words uh, contributed to a Jesuit priest and poet, Daniel Berrigan. He was most widely known for burning a lot of Vietnam War draft cards. What he, was, uh, he didn't write this down, but what many people said he, he, he talked about. And, and just by happenstance, I didn't know before I chose this quote. He actually wrote a whole book about Isaiah, so I think he was reading it well. Your faith is rarely where your head is at and rarely where your heart is at. Your faith is where your ass is at. Inside, what commitments are you sitting? Within what reality do you anchor yourself? Let me read that one more time. Your faith is rarely where your head is at. It is rarely where your heart is at. Your faith is where your ass is at. Inside, what commitments are you sitting Within what reality do you anchor yourself? So Rockway, I challenge you, this week, month, or year, where do you spend your time, and who do you spend it with? And I challenge you to pick a place. That might be St. John's Kitchen through the Working Center. Maybe you can deliver the money. Maybe that's at the Kitchener Public Library, which has a wealth of diversity and different members of the community, and hopefully you'll feel uncomfortable. Maybe it's going to a downtown convenience store, and just hanging out for a while, and talking to who goes in and out, and pick a convenience store that doesn't have the food you normally eat. These are the places where we can build social infrastructure, not just within our home communities, of of the Mennonite church but within the many communities that make up the Kitchener Waterloo area so strength on this wonderful adventure amen